All right, should we clap it up? <laughs> yeah, on um, on on four. One, two, three. Perfect. I, I like how when you you give us the claps, think you kind of conduct a little bit. <laughs> the the yeah, musicianship you know, is in I'm, your bones. If only real conductors actually were that clear. <laughs> Schreeder, this is a very, very big time for you in your artistic development, in your career as a world-class flutist. <laughs> you have an album out. Yes, I do. So first of all, congratulations. I have not made an album, but I have recorded, and I can just... I can get a sense for how much of an iceberg this kind of thing is, where it's like, oh yeah, I just record eight tracks and and, and there we go, right? But <laughs> it, I'm sure, yeah, it was a boatload of work and stuff, but yeah, just super curious. What was kind of the genesis of this project? Was it your idea? Was it someone else's idea? Or did the idea choose you? Yeah, the, the idea chose me. No, it was, um, it was, it was my idea. Um, I wanted to do something like this about a year and a half ago, and I sort of started laying the groundwork for it with completely different pieces. I, th I was still going to play the Bach partita. Okay. So actually, maybe yeah. I should just back up and say, so, so the album yeah, is sure. called, Let's yeah. Back up. So, so the album is called The Quarantine Tapes. And in it, I play the, the, the Bach flute partita and a brace of Talamon fantasies and a fiddle tune called Princess Beatrice. Okay, and, okay. And about a, a year and a half ago, I wanted to, to record the, still the Bach partita, but a, a few other different pieces. And this was before we had any inkling that the pandemic was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I sort of started, I, I talked to, to Libby about doing the artwork for, for that mm -hmm. album and, and stuff like that. Shout out to Libby. Yeah, shout out to Libby Danforth, <laughs> who's a wonderful photographer um, down in Nashville. So, so and, and, then, and then the pandemic happened. So, so I said, you know, I, I remember saying, you know, who, who knows how long this will last? Maybe it'll be a, a few weeks or a couple months. So, yeah. so we'll, we'll just shelve this project for now. But then, you know. <laughs> three months tops. Yeah, three months three tops. Three months tops. <laughs> I literally said that. I was like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll pick this up. Worst comes to worst, we'll pick this up in the fall. <laughs> so, so obviously that, that, that changed. And then dur during the pandemic, obviously, I, I ended up playing a lot of solo flute music, right? because um, there's nothing else yeah, to do yeah so <laughs> i just like how you're i understand you like the album is past tense you already made it but how you're saying like during the pandemic back when there it's like <laughs> this past tense pandemic talk I'm like shooter this is yeah yeah <laughs> very know, wishful like, thinking. We, we started we started the last i think the last podcast by saying you know by talking about the post-covid world but here we are back in the you know the age of the delta variant yeah your next album has to be the the Delta Deposition. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's, that's very Robert Ludlum. The... <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so I ended up, okay, I, yeah. I obviously ended up playing a lot of like sol solo flute music this past year. And I, I had the idea of, I, I don't know, I think you actually saw, saw a bit of this and maybe heard it, but about midway through, through the pandemic, past tense, I had the idea of, of again, of, uh, actually it was called the Quarantine Tapes then too. It was called Panda Music slash the quarantine tapes. And um, I had the idea of recording whatever solo flute music I was working on at home as a, as a little project. And as I'm sure you, you're very hip to, um, home recording is, is hell. Uh, that, so that, that project went by the wayside pretty quickly, especially in the, in, the, in the apartment that was not very conducive to home recording at all. There, you know, it's traffic noises, neighbors, it's hardwood floors. So, you know, everything that everyone was doing, you could hear it just, it was not working out. So I, so I shelved that project. And then when, when I got the, the vaccine, you know, we sort of started to see daylight. So I, I talked to this guy I know in Madison 
who has a little basement studio and he's a sound engineer and he's he's pretty brilliant i would say um so i you know as soon as mm-hmm. i was fully vaccinated I, I i hit him up and we cranked this thing out over uh, about a month we, we we sort of worked on this thing Solid. yeah okay. it was a very intense month and it was it was just a selection of stuff that i had been working on for the past year Sorry, remind me of the repertoire again. So I played the the flute partita by by Johann Sebastian Bach, right. which is okay. a, a gem of the repertoire. And then I played I played um, Fantasias by Telemann in D major and G major. And then okay. I played a fiddle tune called Princess Beatrice by the Scottish fiddler W. B. Leyburn. So yeah. got it. Okay, yeah. So the fiddle tune I was gonna ask because I'm not familiar with that tune. I was gonna ask if it's American, English, Irish, Scottish. Yeah, no. it's Scottish. Czech. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I, yeah, I actually, um, so w- when I started this, you know, as is the way yeah. of as is the way of these things, when you start a project, you have a different conception of how it's gonna be than, than when you actually end up with it. So um, there were actually right, gonna be right. a lot more fiddle tunes in this album uh, in my original conception. I oh, wanted really? to, okay. yeah, I, I wanted to do the Bach partita because my what I've been really working on is is so, solo Bach a lot over the pandemic, mm-hmm. like cello suites, violin right, sonatas, right. and partitas, and then of course a flute partita. And then these Telemann fantasies. And then I also was just sort of learning a lot of fiddle tunes. And I got really into that music. Yeah. So my original conception going into it was I was going to do the Bach partita and then um, a few Telemann fantasies. And then intersperse fiddle tunes between the Telemann fantasies. Got and, it, and, got it. And I actually, recorded, um, I actually recorded more fiddle tunes than ended up on the album. But I cut them at the mm-hmm. last minute before we actually... Okay, yeah. Yeah, just because Restraint I... Restraint is a powerful skill <laughs> yeah i was kind of thinking of the, yeah. the whoever said that if i had more time i would have written a shorter letter yeah i was listening to like the fiddle tunes that i had recorded and in the in the sort of order that i wanted them in and um i realized that this was actually like two i was combining two projects into one you okay. know I, I and i kind of thought yeah. maybe the the thing of the uh, an album of talamon fantasies interspersed with like all 12 of the Telemann fantasies interspersed with fiddle tunes. That's, that's an interesting project that I think is a separate project too, to this one. Yeah. So the way I had it, you know, it was taking, taking the limelight away from the Bach partita, which I wanted to sort of be yeah. the centerpiece. Right. So, so I just sure. cut, cut the fiddle tunes except for one. So it made it a shorter album, but I think more tight and cohesive, you know, cause we, we've talked before about how it's a shame that albums have really just become sort of catalogs of, you know, everything that you recorded. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, it was hard, but I had to be yeah. like, it's taking away from the experience here. That's where it's at, right? Because so many of albums, not just in classical, just the current, you know, phase of the development of music we're at, just with the technology we have um, being streaming, albums have really become playlists. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mostly. There's some, right, there's some that I think do have a good concept behind it and stuff. But yeah, it's not like the old days of vinyl and even say CDs and stuff, right? When it was just, it was very much um, a beginning, middle and logic to the to your programming for your album and your tracks and stuff. And that's kind of been lost. But yeah, so I, I totally commend you on thinking about it that way. I think that's really awesome. I'm curious, yeah, if I could play the role of NPR journalist <laughs> Chris Arkin here. <laughs> Good afternoon. We have a special guest with us today. Yeah, yeah, you, uh, you have to do the, the, the requisite NPR voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm curious, how did the recording go, uh, the recording sessions? Because like, that's the thing I'm always curious about with albums. 
Um, I love behind the scenes, even like with Tony Bennett, um, Tony Bennett, who, who just recently turned 95. So happy birthday, Tony, <laughs> which is crazy. In case he's listening. <laughs> he's singing a concert, you know, next month. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, if I get tweeted at by Tony Bennett, I, I mean, I mean, you achievement just, unlocked. At, at that point, ben. you should just kill yourself because it's never going to get better. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's the high of the highs. But yeah. So yeah, like even um, like watching Tony Bennett's recording sessions when he did an album with Lady Gaga, hearing him talk about the recording sessions he did with the great jazz pianist Bill Evans back in the 70s or 80s that was, incredible album. The environment of the recording session I, I think is so interesting and the things you discover and the things you change as you go throughout it. So I'm curious how those recording sessions went for you. That's a good question. I have to say that, that this, was, this was my sort of first prolonged one-to-one interaction with the, with the microphone. And I totally fell in love with it. Yeah, uh, you know this. This is. I was thinking like this is something that I could. I could really get into. I could do this my my entire life. That was the most. That month was about just about the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, and nice. it really felt more like a filmmaker than a than a musician. Mm. So so the well, the way that it the yeah. way that we did it it was just me and and Ben Johnson. Um, shout out at at Wavelength Productions. Um, and um, he, like I said, he he was totally brilliant. And it was just me and him in his in his studio, um, which was just a small room in the basement of an office building that he had sort of rigged to be soundproofed and um, set up some, mm-hmm. some microphones and, you know, has, has the software there. And um, I just, I played, I played through everything. Essentially, I played th- through everything twice. Okay. And then I took that home and I just listened to it. I, I listened to it as if someone else were playing it, not, not me. So I tried to be detached from the whole thing. And then I took pages and pages of, of notes with timestamps of what I liked and what I didn't like. And um, so, then, so then began the process of piecing it together from those two takes. So, you know, I would, I would take, I'd take a second from, I would take, you know, a second or two from, from take two and put it into take one. And um, it became a real ship of Theseus thing where, you know, who, who knows? I, I, I'm listening to it now. I don't even know which takes something is coming from or not. You know, it, it was a, it, like, right, right. M- the majority of the process was spent not actually playing through the music. Um, I was really thinking of someone like Glenn Gould. Though, you know, I, you mm-hmm. know, you can watch his videos on on YouTube of how he was in the studio, and yeah. he's you know he's there thinking you know he's like stop, uh, we'll put in take four from here you know from, from here on to you know, yeah right. you know for three seconds we'll put in take four but then we'll go back to take two. So yeah. so that was the majority of the process. We were we were just just cutting this thing together. I, I, like I said, as if, as if I were a filmmaker, like there was one day, there, there were actually two days, one where I played the Bach Partita twice and one where I played the Talmud Fantasies twice. So those were like the, the musician days, but the rest of it was piecing it together as if we had filmed this footage and, and, reco- and the, the filming days were over. Now we're editing, you know, now we're editors. Yeah, that's often a point I think a lot of people don't fully understand or grasp. And, and it, it makes sense because it's not readily apparent the way a film is yeah a film is an artificial construction right opposite to what a stage shakespeare play is which is a performance recording and music the same way a lot of people think and i think a lot of us me included thought this going in whenever we've played on recordings that yeah it's just a performance you turn the mic on for and not quite, yeah, sure, if you're recording a live performance, like a concert hall, that's one thing. But recording a record in a studio or anything like this, it's very much a craft. And it's not just in classical, it's with pop, jazz, all realms of music. It's really the game of building something with the raw material that you captured. And that raw material was 
the recording itself, but to put the album and music together, it really is a roll up your sleeves kind of craft. And and if you do it well, it sounds seamless and you won't know the difference. But yeah. that that is what it is. And there's a thought that's like um, I've heard some people say it's almost like unethical, <laughs> like it it's it's like cloak and dagger, which I think is kind of funny. But it it's like yeah, but it's also unethical or unnatural to be listening to this in the first place right and and then there's the and i'm sure you thought this right i think we all think this when we're recording ourselves you usually notice this when the first time you have to record yourself or anything like in college or like college audition tapes and things if you're recording a live performance like a recital you're giving in in a in a concert hall the pressure is sort of off you in a way because everyone knows oh it was a live performance whatever happened happened but if you're recording in a recording studio where you have complete control over all the sound levels and your playing, how many takes you get to do, your level of perfectionism just like maxes out because you know whatever you're putting down on tape is going to live forever <laughs> yeah. in a way. And if you make a mistake, the audience or the listeners will say like, you know, it's not like a live performance. No, because that happens in live performances. But in a recording studio, it's like, oh, why didn't, was he too lazy to go back and do a take two? Is he not, right? So yeah. just the the pressure in the environment, it's just so it's so different and two completely different animals you're dealing with in that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot there. So first of all, I, I hope I'm not gonna ruin ruin anyone's listening experience, but when you're listening to classical music, a lot of the quote unquote live recordings are often edited as well. Mm-hmm. Um they're edited between multiple live recordings that that orchestra did, say, over the weekend. Yeah, if I can chime in, even from our vinyl revival. That Frank Sinatra recording, that's a compilation of four live recordings, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was not just one it, one night they just turned the mic on for. No, they turned the mic on four different nights and weaved them together to create this. This. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it, because you create something that almost didn't even exist. You're creating something yeah. that's even higher, right? Exactly. Like the quintessential, ideal, perfect performance, quote-unquote perfect, that, that you as a listener get to hear and enjoy and it's something you could not have heard if you went any of those four yes that's 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 i think that's well put and that that pretty much you know i I don't need i hardly need to add anything to that but um that does it for me everyone Uh, Um, this was npr (laughs) 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 um but I will. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to ruin what you just said by by um, adding adding my own thoughts. But um, you know, th- this is this is a whole topic that that I've had lots of conversations with musicians about. And someone like Glenn, Glenn Gould chimed in. You know, you know, he he talked about it endlessly, and he um, he wrote about it a lot too. And the the first thing I have to say is that it's impossible to tell where the edit. If you do it well, it's impossible. Mm. To, it's impossible mm. to tell where the edits are. Like you said with the Sinatra album, you know, if if you didn't tell anyone, they would think that that was just one night. And Glenn Gould actually has um, he has an essay in which he did a sort of small test, where with, with musicians, like professional musicians and amateur musicians, and I think just complete laymen, where he he set his own recordings. He he had them listen to his own recordings and try to have them guess where the edits were and. Um, essentially, all of them, even the professionals, were within the sort of random guess um, range. Oh, and yeah. now, even even now, I've listened to my album, you know, after it's come out, and now that there's about a month between the actual process of making it and releasing it, I don't, I couldn't tell you where some of the edits are. You know, I, hmm. I'm listening and I, yeah. I don't even know. So that part of it, you know, that's um, 
the part where people, you know, there's a kind of person who will say like, no, but, you know, I can tell that even if it's not that it's not a clean edit, I can tell that something is like the magic is lost in the moment or something. It's the kind of person who will claim that. But if you actually do a test, I don't think anyone will, will be able to, to tell. Yeah. So there's, there's that aspect of it. And then I think, I think what, what you said is, is, is true in that if you, if you approach it this way, actually your, your responsibility is a lot greater. Your responsibility to the music and to the audience, it's a lot higher. So I said that we did two takes of everything, but there were also punch-ins, you know. So there, it, was, it was like a three, three-part process where I played it, and then the bulk of the recording was, was sort of cut between those two takes. You know, that was, that was a lot of work. And then there were, there were still moments where it was like, that's okay, that's acceptable, and if it happened live... I would be fine with it. And so again, uh, uh, sorry, I, I wanted to say, um, this is not, we're not really talking about editing here to correct for mistakes. Obviously mistakes do happen, but mm-hmm. it's not like, it's not like, you know, um, I gave, um, you know, eight shoddy performances of these things. And then between, <laughs> between the eight of those, we compiled one awesome one, you know? Yeah. Right. It, right. It, the, the, the notes and the, and the, and the, the tone and the, and the pitch and all that stuff, that's, that's there for all the takes, you know, with mm-hmm. mi- minor mistakes aside. So, because I, I think another misconception is that like, oh, it makes you sound better than you actually did. And and I don't mm-hmm. think that's really true, you know? What you're saying is each of these takes could have lived on their own as a live performance. Like people would have clapped. Exactly. Right? It'd be fine. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to sort of just dispel that misconception that that, um, that it makes you sound better than, than you are. Because I think that the sort of gist of your musicianship is present no matter what. And what it does raise is, like I said, is your responsibility to the music and to the audience where... You know, like I said, after sort of editing together these two takes, there were still moments where I was like, that's not, that's not perfect. That's not exactly the way that I hear it in my head. And I couldn't live with myself, and I couldn't expect the audience to, to sort of live with me um, if I just let this mm-hmm. go, because I can fix this really easily. Or not really easily, but I can fix this, you know, in a way that you can't for a live right. performance. So I think, I think it's, it's actually the only ethical way to, to approach recording, because there's just, it's, you have a greater responsibility to to give a product that that is um a quality unique product i think if you like i've said before that that perform whatever you want and you know people are there because you know you're in the same location and they want to hear music and you're playing music but if you're going to record something and put it out in the world i think you have a duty to um not just be perfect but try to be unique and say something because otherwise you're you're simply wasting your your listeners time um, if you put out, you right. know, yet another recording of the Bach Partita that sounds like every other one, you, you're, you're wasting their time. So, in fact, the the ethics yeah. is the ethics are reversed. You know, to people who yeah. say that that editing is is unethical, I, I would say it's actually unethical to to waste your listeners' time by by leaving in mistakes and leaving in sort of moments that aren't in line with your sort of overall conception of the music. Right, right, and I think there's an understanding too. It's a different medium, right? If <laughs> it's not a live performance, so it shouldn't be treated as one, right? Yeah. And likewise, live performances shouldn't be treated like recording sessions. You shouldn't, you know, stop and do four takes of something, yeah. right? Obviously, it sounds stupid. It's not. It makes sense. It makes too much sense when I say it that way. But that you know, a live performance should not be treated like a recording session. But some people may not apply the logic the other way around, which I think is just as valid. Which is, recording sessions should not also be treated like a live performance, yeah. and. 
I think what you um, what you brought up is a good point, and this is an example that seems like the opposite kind of example, but I think you'll get what I mean. And the point you're making is kind of like the unwritten contract or loyalty with your your listeners or fan base or something, right? Because it's it's a two way street, right? Listeners want music, and you need listeners, right? It's you know, I mean that there's the art appreciators and the art creators both need each other. I always mm-hmm. thought, and so I remember. Um, but I remember Paul McCartney being interviewed. And this was maybe a few years ago or so when he was doing a concert in New York at Madison Square Garden or something, and he was kind of asked, you know, okay, you have all this new music you're working on and new stuff you've come out with over the past ten years. So why do you play so many of the old classic Beatles hits and things, things you've been playing for 50, 60 years at this point that you're, pro- you're probably tired of? Why do you keep playing these songs at your live concerts? And he simply said, he said, look, you know, I, I like my fans. If it weren't for fans of mine, I wouldn't be where I am. And also, people are paying good money for these tickets. I want them to hear music they came to hear, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You do have a a responsibility to the people who are listening to you. Um, I, I'm not someone who thinks yeah. that the artist is sort of on this mountain on high, and and people are privileged if they get to listen to him. You know, I'm not one of these people. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um, every every person right, that right. that listens to me or reads me or whatever is is my privilege, and you should work for it. So I think that's that's, yeah. that's part of that. Um, and then I will say, you know, th- there, there are artistic elements to, to recording and recording in this, this peculiar manner, which I, actually I don't think that a lot of classical musicians do. Um, I think it's, it's more, I mean, obviously classical musicians, I think they, they largely edit to, to fix any issues, like with notes or intonation. But I don't think classical music, I don't think a lot of classical musicians approach it the way that I did, where... Um, I really, if you looked at the, you know, it's like a, if you looked at the, the sort of uh, the waveforms, you know, it's a, it's a disaster. It's a massacre, what, what, what we did, you know, um, because, for example, so they're in the G major Talamon fantasy. The second movement is, is a kind of implied fugue. Um, and I was actually sort of my angle, my relationship with the microphone. I changed that depending on what, which voice I was um, I was playing in the fugue. So, you know, that's, if you're just live, mm. you're just sitting in a seat and you're hearing it and, and you're just, you, you know, you can't change that in any way. But in, in a recording studio, I can say, okay, this is the main voice. I'm actually going to sort of be directly on, to, on the mic here. And then this is a peripheral voice. And for that, I'm going to sort of play off to the side a bit. Um, and, then, and then when we splice those together, it creates, it creates an effect that you couldn't possibly hear live. Um, so right, that's something right. that could only be had during editing. And that, that really feels um, more like a, a decision that a filmmaker would make than a, than a musician because, um, you know, you can change your dynamics and your articulation all you want, but um, to actually just uh, have a different angle on the mic, um, that, that's, something, that's something totally, um, that's something that has to be conceived in the studio. Thank you. 
And then there are other creative things like the Bach partita that I that I did. It's, it's heavily ornamented on all the repeats, and in parts of it, I, I almost re- recomposed it. Right, and that's something that if you if you put me on stage and said, you know, this is a very important recital. There are a lot of people here, and you know, your your career is like based on this. Like, would I have taken those risks? Because I'll, you know, most of those ornaments are improvised. I, w- I probably would have stuck to some of the ornaments that I knew I could pull off and would sound good and were not too risky. Right. But then you would have played it safe. Right. I would have played it safe because it's a, you know it's, yeah. this is it. But in the recording studio, you know the, the sort of take two ness of it offers you um, a kind of I think it offers you a way to be to be more creatively in touch with what this music is is actually about, which is I think the, the sort of improvisatory nature of this. Paradoxically, you can really bring that out in a studio because you can you can really <laughs> right, say right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna riff on this, and if it doesn't go well, there's always take two, uh, and you know that exactly. I think actually creates more beautiful moments than um, than if you had to yeah. play it safe in a in a concert hall. It's, it's funny, you talk about um, this not happening very often in the classical music space, where classical musicians kind of compile multiple takes together to create something more magical than what any one of them could have ever been. <laughs> I know a, a counterexample to that, which I, I love, is you remember, I think we talked about this maybe in our third episode when we were ranking our like favorite classical music YouTube videos oh, at yeah, the time, yeah. at least. Yeah. One of the ones I picked was Leonard Bernstein conducting the... Boston Symphony Orchestra performing Tchaikovsky Symphony Five at Tinglewood mm-hmm. back in maybe the seventies or something. So it's a live performance and stuff. It's captured. It's filmed. It, it's great. It's one of my favorite live performances on on YouTube for multiple reasons. One of them is, of course, it's the music is stellar. Like the Boston Symphony just sounds, you know, the best they've some of the best or- orchestral playing ever captured. Um, on tape was like that era of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, uh, I love the audience. How the audience is all in like shorts and sandals because <laughs> it's a Tinglewood performance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because it. For those who are not aware, Tinglewood's like the summer music festival in Lenox, Massachusetts, a few hours drive away from Boston, where the Boston Symphony has like their summer residency, and it's very, very casual, I guess. Not not black tie attire <laughs> and things, because it's in a cool like 
mountainous. I mean, I don't know. I'm from the West Coast, so I always roll my eyes when I hear East Coasters talk about mountains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very, there's large hills there <laughs> and forests and stuff. And it's the summer residency of the Boston Symphony. So I love that about it. But one of the things I think is interesting is I want to say, I'm pretty sure it's the second movement of that. They actually did some of this cloak and dagger <laughs> stuff where the second movement, so after they performed the whole symphony, the orchestra, I mean, the audience goes wild. It was a, such a great performance. But then Bernstein says, all right, we're going to actually record the second movement again. Because I forget what it was. And I'm not sure if anyone really knows, but something didn't go quite as well as he wanted it to. And so they just re-recorded the second movement and slotted that in to the first, you know, in between t- uh, movements one, three, and four. So mm-hmm. that second movement was actually recorded after they already performed the whole symphony. I'm curious, like, what actually went wrong. I, yeah, I'm. Maybe if you ask somebody that played in the orchestra at that time, maybe they'll know. Um, but what's funny is, I think if you like look closely, you can tell like <laughs> all the musicians and Lenny himself are like very sweaty in the second movement, <laughs> and then the third movement, they're they're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Some things you can't hide, but... <laughs> One of my favorite examples of this is, is that there's an iconic recording of Mozart's G major concerto, uh, the flute concerto, um, that Emmanuel Paoud plays. Um, I think at mm-hmm. the Mozartium. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the Mozartium in, in Salzburg where he has a red bow tie on. It's an incredible yeah, performance. A great institution that discovers new works by Mozart <laughs> all, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you may recognize them as premiering Mozart's Allegro in D. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Rondo in D, actually. Or what? No, oh. was it an Allegro? I think no, it was an Allegro. <laughs> but but anyway, um, so Paud is playing this Mozart concerto, and it's a wonderful recording. And I'm pretty sure this is just conjecture on my part, but I'm pretty sure that he he cuts between the actual performance and the dress rehearsal, because um, the second oh, the second okay. movement of the Mozart concerto, so it's it's scored for a small chamber orchestra, and the first and third movements have oboes. And in the second movement, actually, the oboes are switched for flutes. And in okay. the in 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 a live performance, obviously, we need the the flutist to actually be on stage for the first and third movements because we can't just have people walking <laughs> in and out during the right, during right. the performance. But in a dress rehearsal, they don't need to be there because it's just a dress rehearsal. And uh, if you look closely, the, the you know you have a case of disappearing flutists during that during that recording, um, where sometimes <laughs> yeah, the flutists are there. Here and yeah. there, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Wait, wait, what? Where are they? Yeah. Oh, they're back. Okay, here they come. They're just you know back back in a back, back in a jiffy. But yeah, if you look closely at the, at the orchestra in the back, um, there there are two flutists who are sometimes there and sometimes not, and I and I'm pretty sure it's because mm. they're cutting between. Um, uh, either address or or they did it again later, and the flutists weren't there for that because they couldn't get them. It's, I, yeah, I, I just uh, know that some tomfoolery is having because you know over the you know, flutists we're, we're known we're known to be quick on and off stage, but not that quick. Thank you. 
Yeah, your instrument you can just put in your, <laughs> in your suit jacket, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, w- I always did envy that with flutists. Like, even traveling with you and things, just a flute is just so easy to travel yeah, with. Yeah. You can just put it in your backpack and you're fine. And I can't complain too much. Like, a trumpet, it's not easy, but it's not hard. It's not like a cello. Or, yeah, you don't have to buy extra tickets. Huge, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so it's interesting. I, call me crazy, but I doubt I am. I, I think this perspective, this take... This um, strategy should be applied to more things in life than just classical music performances. I think, you know, weddings. Why not have, like, every wedding ceremony just do it twice and film both of them? And lo and behold, you'll have the perfect wedding. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I fully agree with that. If, if I could live my life, in, like, if I could live my entire life the way that I, I lived um, for that month when I was recording this music, I would, I would totally yeah. take you up on that. Yeah, and if like if Uncle Phil objects, you know, the first time, you can, <laughs> I object. <laughs> like, all right, the, take two. You can't say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or alternatively, take two. Can you have it up a bit so we can at least get some drama? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> you, you're saying this is. I know you're saying this kind of tongue in cheek that that this is all clo- cloak and dagger. And, and I and I know that that there are certain musicians who are who would maybe be sort of ashamed to to admit that, that there's editing going on you know they want to sort of hide it and and pretend like it's not yeah. I, I want to sort of put it put it front and center and 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 say that it's not actually i you know i don't intend this to be clo- cloak and dagger i intend to be very upfront about it and actually like i said before i actually intend to to state very clearly that i think this this recording is something that only could have happened in a studio it's not it it couldn't possibly be a, a capturing of a live moment because there are things that i do that can only be done in editing you know um, yeah. Just so yeah. So I'm 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 really I'm really yep. proud of that. And I think we, like both me and Ben, the, the audio engineer, we sort of learned how to do that. As you know, if you, every project teaches you how to how to do it, right? So when we started it, we we're yep, kind of like exactly. still finding our legs. But by the end, um, I think you know it was it was purring along like a like a smooth machine. We we sort of found our found our legs and um, and yeah. I don't know. I I think I, I like I said I I totally fell, fell in love with with making music this way. Because yeah. it's it's more it's it's more intellectual it's more intellectual you know there, there's a there's an element of, yeah, of concertizing yeah. that's very athletic, where you have to sort of be right. you have to sort of perform in the moment. Um, this was really more of a of an intellectual project where it's like is this really how I want this to go, and if it's not I can do it again. Yeah, and, you know there's still some element of of athleticism there and actually being able to perform this music or play this music, but. Um, the relationship Absolutely. that I had with the with the music was much more rewarding than than it was when I than than if I were to just perform it, you know, because if yeah. when you're performing something, you're obviously making interpretive decisions and stuff like that. But you're really, at least, I am. I, my mindset is that of trying to mitigate disaster, as opposed yeah, to like just trying to get through it. Really. Yeah, <laughs> trying to get through with the with the most amount of good moments and the least amount of bad ones. But you know, right, right. Um, that, that that to me is not very, I just, I felt much more intellectually and artistically engaged in the studio. And um, I, I've always sort of like heard Glenn, Glenn Gould say that um, he really, he really became the musician that he was when he quit concertizing and took up the studio. Yeah. And, and I've always sort of appreciated that and um, never really thought much more of it. But, you know, again, that, that month that I was sort of doing this thing, I was like, oh yeah, I, I really see what he's talking about now. This this is music, you know, the, the performing thing, that's, you know, that's what you do, you know, to do gigs, to get money, to get publicity, whatever, um, you know, people need to see you and it's nice to sort of be together with people, but an actual recreation, like I felt much more like a, like a composer or something, like I was recreating this music with, yeah. with intent, you know. No, that's so true. 
yeah, that's so true, and that implies that applies to, I think, all musicians like Taylor Swift, right? She 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 doesn't go and record the song she performed live. No, she goes and performs live the song. She <laughs> yes, recorded. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's like that's the order it kind of yeah. goes, and the musicianship happens. You know, the creation process that happens in, in the studio yeah. that happens in, in the studio and the performance has its place too like you and i both aren't anti-performance I don't right think. right you know, this is that's the showcasing part in some sort of respect and and again like the real reason taylor swift tours is to make money <laughs> um like and, and to tell ever people since, about her album. You know, yeah and to tell people but like ever since napster artists just don't make that much off of albums anymore unless you're like in the top point one percent yeah. I guess you know you can't really make a full time career off of just albums, but you tour to yeah promote the album I guess, but yeah also sell tickets, and that's just part of the whole gig called being a musician. Yeah. This is all part of the. Hey, speak for yourself, man. I, I just checked my I just checked my Spotify royalties, and I think I made a solid I think ninety five cents last time I checked. So, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean in. Yeah, I mean, you know, we won't go on too much longer about this, but uh, yeah, it's it's funny, you know, you talk about, again, yeah, we, we both understand, right? I said like cloak and dagger, yeah. right? It's like a bit tongue-in-cheek and, and things, but it's like so much of what we listen to is is edited and it's for the better, right? I mean, hate to break it to you guys, but this very podcast <laughs> <laughs> does get edited. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. This is a great example of something that we're editing to make it sound like a natural conversation. Yeah. I, I've talked to some um, podcasters and even I've heard like some big time podcasters say this who, are, you know, I don't know personally, but I follow their work. And a lot of them have contemplated as a Patreon sort of perk and stuff. One of the things you, you get access to is the unedited version of one of their episodes. And everyone, everyone, um, all the podcast creators, they always consider this and they always end up saying the same thing they go back and they think about it and they listen to it and they decide that's a terrible idea like you don't want to listen to that version it's just so so messy it's so raw and not in a good way it's just it's it's a different it's a different episode and it's it almost sounds like different people in a way the reason that that is a lesser experience is because you've heard the edited version i i've firmly right. believe that the, the sort of live, quote-unquote, or the unedited thing is only acceptable if you haven't heard anything else. So if you only hear a concert and you think, that was fine, that was a concert, or if you only hear a conversation, you know, unedited, and that's that, that's, that's, you're more accepting of it. But if you go from hearing a tightly edited and, for lack of a better word, curated conversation, yeah. and, then, and then you go and hear the unedited version of that conversation, that is my idea of hell, Right. And yeah. like, <laughs> it's like watching an unedited movie. <laughs> you, you see the actors like sipping their coffee in the back. And <laughs> yeah, it's just a B-roll of just like, all, this. all right, take 98, action. <laughs> yeah, just sort of tangentially, I think I may have already said this, but we, we, can, we can cut this if, if need be, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of which. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, we're not cutting that now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think that there's something to to all of this where where there's a paradox where you can be more more spontaneous because of this. You know, the conversation can actually be more yeah. more like the we yeah. can be more like our sort of platonic ideal of of the conversations that we have because we can cut something that is that doesn't work. So, like the the two, the two Talmon fantasies that I recorded, I had no idea that those were the two that I was going to record. 
until I went into that studio Got, on that uh, day. I see. Yeah, there, yeah. there are 12 of them, and over the pandemic, um, it was my project to, to learn all of them. If I had to perform it, I, I have to know which ones I'm going to play <laughs> yeah. in advance. But in the studio, I was like, exactly. today I feel like this, and I think this actually pairs well with the box. So I'm just going to try it. And if it doesn't, I can play another one. You know, or the thing with the fiddle tunes where I recorded it and then, you know, a lot of times I'll give a concert and I'll think that was nice. But, you know, it kind of sagged when I was playing the the um, the Schubert there, you know, or the yeah. it, didn't, it was, went on a bit long and I should have maybe cut this last piece before the intermission. You know, it's yeah. too bad in a concert. In a recording, yeah. that's exactly what I did. It's the it's the freedom you're granted by knowing you can just cut it that leads to it being better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. In, in a podcast as well. Right. You know, I can just say, go fuck, right? and we can just cut that, right? Yeah, or bleep it. <laughs> yeah. Right, or, right. Or, but or I can you can just... say, like, hey, let's, uh, this is crazy, but let's talk about this thing. That's totally tangentially, yeah. you know, maybe unrelated. It could be great. could be really boring. We can, you know, if, if we were yeah. on stage and there were people listening to us talk, I may not bring it up because I'm afraid it's going to go badly. But, you know, just when it's you and me here with the mics, I, I, you know, I'm much yeah. more free to you know, just throw out a question or a topic that's completely weird and crazy. And if it goes really well, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't, who cares? You know, no one has to know that it happened except for the two of us. <laughs> so that would actually be an interesting sort of thing to keep track of. Like how many times have we, have we said, you know, okay, we may end up cutting this, but how about, you know, and then X. How many times have we said that and how many times does it actually make the final cut versus how many times do we cut it? I, I mean, I would say my hunch and, and maybe it's just... just a bias to think, you know, we're so good at this. But my hunch is, yeah, more often than not, that does end up in the final cut. There are some things, though, probably at least once or twice every episode, there's something where we do kind of say that, and we end up cutting it. And yeah. we either table that topic for a different day, or an, and a lot of times it's not because it's a bad topic, or it's not even related. It's just not as interesting as everything else we're talking about. And again, our listeners are giving us their time listening to this podcast it's like we have to be respectful and cognizant of that and um so yeah so often yeah if it's if it's just good but not just not good enough though yeah we'll just cut it and it's no harm no foul no foul uh yeah yeah. exactly it's like it's it's often you know if if we were just at a if we were you know we often joke that this podcast is like you know you're sitting at the bar so over listening in um there are a lot of moments that if you were sitting yeah (laughs) and politely listening in and there are a lot of moments that if you if you just heard us talk about this you know if you actually were just hearing us talk at a bar you you know it wouldn't be bad it's not like we're having a bad conversation yeah the bar empties out where's everyone going (laughs) (laughs) something we said That would actually be, if, if you say something and the bar empties out, I would actually wager that that is podcast gold, <laughs> whatever you said. <laughs> so, Streeter, yeah, your incredible album. I've listened to it. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. The quarantine tapes is live pretty much everywhere, yeah, right? Yeah. Anywhere you stream, Any, anywhere you music stream these days. yeah. Um, it's, it's live. So Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, <laughs> <laughs> Deezer, Deezer, whatever that, whatever that is, YouTube. It's it's in all the places, yeah. 
Yeah, I wonder if it could get on like prime phonic or any like the classical music specialized. Yeah, I think I, I, think I need to contact someone for that because the, the the distribution channels don't go directly to those things. You need to you need to go through yeah. some some curators. So I need to look into how to do that. Yeah, because. That'd actually be like really interesting what that process looks like. And I'd be curious actually if you don't mind relating back or yeah. relaying back uh, what that's like. Yeah, I'm curious how how you make the cut to get on a classical music focused streaming yeah. service. Like yeah, Prime Phonic and what's the other one? Idagio, Idagio yeah. It is? Yeah. Yeah. So but okay, but for by and large, it's valuable on Spotify, Apple Music and, and the such. And yeah, it's called the Quarantine Tapes, brilliant title, brilliant album artwork. <laughs> Props to Libby. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I've it's great, it's fantastic. It's it's perfect for making a cup of tea, going on a walk, relaxing with a glass of wine after a long day of work, or just or just you know while doing some work at the same time. It's the the album that fits all your needs. All <laughs> your needs. Um, anything else? Anything else more you want to tell us about the album? Maybe how we could support it or something? Because. Sure. You know, you've. I I know you might be hitting the one dollar mark soon, uh, for <laughs> yeah. for streaming revenue. Yes, yeah, because so, <laughs> you're ninety five cents in. You can support this album by streaming it. You know, five million times on Spotify. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or um, you know, uh, you, you can go to Bandcamp.com, which this is my first time using it, and I love that website. Um, I, I I never really gave it the time of day before, but you can you can go there and you can actually you can stream it there too. I, I've set the streaming to unlimited. I know some people say like you can only stream it three times before you buy it or something, but I've stayed I've stayed oh, true to to what we talked about a couple of podcasts ago about um, putting things on on the internet for free. So the yeah. streaming understanding how the internet yeah, works, you mean exactly. <laughs> um, so you can stream it for free on Bandcamp or anywhere else all the time, and that's never going to change. But if you want to, if you if you want to purchase it for five dollars or more, you can you can get also the other artwork. So there's there's a cover, but there's all in all there's oh, there are nice. four pieces of art that Livy made for this album and they're all beautiful. And so you can actually get so you'll get the high quality audio files of course, but you'll also get downloads of um, high res images uh, of the artwork from, from Libby. And then also liner notes, which is just a couple of essays that are that I sort of wrote about, you know, just stuff here and there. Um, along with the with the artwork, um, so you can get these sort of bonus materials for for five dollars or more on Bandcamp, and that's you know that that's equivalent to God knows how many streams on Spotify, so um, <laughs> you, you can support yeah. it there. But it's um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, I was going to say I think I think the um, that that model again is is proving itself to be the best one because because yeah. people have been really nice to me on Bandcamp. You know they, they've been they've been yeah. supporting me and it's it's really nice. And again, I don't I don't think you need to to really demand that people pay to access your content. I think if you just put it out there and, and ask, you know, like, and just say, like, if you, if you, you know, if you felt that this was valuable, you know, here's where you can support it. I think in, in my, in my experience, um, people have been very kind about that. So. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. in the previous or a few episodes ago where we talked about current streaming models for some of like the big classical institutions, like the big orchestras and stuff, a lot of them, I just think don't get it because they're run by a bunch of corporate suits. And, and to be fair, this business model is fairly, fairly recent. Only in the pa- only in the past few years has the Patreon quote model actually taken off and, and become a viable source of, of full time income to many creators. So it is a new business model. But yeah, I firmly believe put out, assuming what you're putting out is good, you know, <laughs> put out great content for free, and and charge a little bit more for some cool extras. 
That's yeah. it. You know, I I think I think you'll be in good shape if you do something like that. Yeah. So okay, so Spotify. Um, we'll put links to everything in the in the show notes. Um, what's the Bandcamp URL? It's just my name dot Bandcamp dot com. So Sashridabhagavatula dot Bandcamp dot com. Super super easy. Awesome. We'll, we'll, awesome. Put, we'll put a link in the in the show notes as well and. We'll put everything there. And Love just it. final words. I just want to, um, first of all, the, the, the most important people here are uh, Ben Johnson, the audio engineer, and, and Libby Danforth, yeah. the, the um, artist, the photographer who um, did the artwork. And I also wanted to, um, in my liner notes, I have a little thing at the end of uh, special thanks. So special thanks to, to my family, to Annalise, to Tomas, to you. Uh, to Jean, to, to Ben, to Livy, to, to Tom Peterson and Gabriel Ruiz who fixed my flute up, to um, Steve Burley, and uh, to Pfizer for getting me the 5G implant that let, that let me do this fucking thing, finally. After a year, after a, after a year of sitting on this project, you know, the moment, the moment I got scheduled for the vax, I was like, I'm doing it, baby. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about when you were telling me about your album and the repertoire of choices, and something I think would be kind of interesting to talk about, is the idea of solo repertoire. Hmm. I think it's really interesting, right? And uh, particularly for instruments like you or me or violin, not for piano, let's say, not for a, not for a typical polyphonic instrument, but yeah. Solo violin repertoire, rep for, you know, just a, one violinist on stage pl- playing a piece from beginning to end, and it's written for no one else, just one violinist, or solo flute repertoire, solo trumpet repertoire, there's a bit less of that than, than you guys have, but it, there is some. And so, it's funny, when I think of, like, solo, let's say, violin repertoire, which I think is some of the best violin repertoire, like Bach partitas, right? You usually only hear it <laughs> as as an encore after the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto or something, right? You usually don't hear these sorts of pieces as the spotlight. And maybe it's because it just isn't as jazzy and sexy as, you know, a, the, the, you know, Beethoven Violin Concerto or something with the, a grand orchestra and things. It's just one violinist on stage. So maybe that's it. But some of this repertoire is so great so wonderful but you don't hear it performed or recorded that much and yeah just kind of curious your perspective on that and why you chose to record this sort of stuff on your album aside from the obvious you don't have to worry about pain and scheduling a accompanist which is a whole world but yeah, yeah curious your thoughts because you performed a lot more of this than i have part of which maybe because your instrument has a lot more of it than mine does <laughs> but yeah curious your thoughts on the solo repertoire field you're really hitting a sweet spot here for me because this is something that i spend a lot of my life thinking about hell yeah i think first of all the reason that that you don't see say the the bach sonatas and partitas performed often is because obviously in a in a sort of uh, an orchestra concert situation that the the format of an orchestra concert is more set in place you kind of do the sort of overture overture concerto symphony format you know (laughs) yeah right right or like overture concerto symphony encore which is usually where the bach comes in right that that's more set in stone in recitals, I think you, you see it more often, but I think people people really they tend to shy away from it because it's it's really it's really problematic, right? It's it, it poses a lot of mm-hmm. problems for the performer to, 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 to play this music. And then it's recorded even less often because 
in the case of something like the, the Bach, you know, he, he has the, the six cello suites, the six partitas and sonatas for violin, and then the, the one partita for, for flute. These are the major solo instrumental works. And I think people, people really don't want to put their, their foot down as, as like having an interpretation of this thing because it's, so, it's, it's daunting, you know? Yeah. It's daunting because you're solely responsible for what's happening. Your, your interpretive yeah, right. choices are, are your own. Right. And there's no one else... There's no one else you can sort of fall back on. The title for, for the sonatas and partitas for violin, Bach writes, um, say solo, which I think is actually a misspelling. It, it should be say soli, six mm. solos, right? But um, the way that he wrote it, actually with that, the way that you would translate that is, is I think something like you are alone or something like that. Mm. So, um, so, you know, it could be, it could be a misspelling from the days without autocorrect, or it could be Bach sort of, you know, winking at you and sort of, you know, pu- pushing you on stage saying, you're on your own, buddy. You got no one else um, behind you. I always think like, so, so obviously like so- solo piano is its own thing because you, you can, play, you can right. play symphonies on the piano. But um, right, exactly, I find yeah. these, uh, let's take the examples of mm-hmm. the, um, the Bach solos for cello, violin, and flute. I, I find them really beautiful because, because Bach He's, he's running up against this thing where he, he's writing music that's complicated and polyphonic, but he only has one line to do it with. And, and actually, your brain fills in the rest of it, right? Your, your brain fills in the, the bass line and the melody and the harmony um, when you're hearing this, this, one, this one line, the, the way that Bach writes it. So I find that it has its own, it, its own sort of unique beauty that the partitas for piano, say, don't have um, yeah. because they're fully realized, you know? Whereas um, there, there's right, some, there's right. almost like a, a a beauty in the in the sparseness of the of the polyphony in the, in these works. I don't know. I don't know where where I was going with that. What what was your what was your original question again? Oh, I, I guess I didn't really have a question. I was just, I was just <laughs> kind of throwing throwing the idea out there of the solo rep and why we don't hear it so yeah. often. And it makes sense that it's funny. Some of the solo Bach rep is some of his most monumental works, right? Yeah. And people may be yeah, afraid to 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 go on the record of having an, a performance and a recording an interpretation, a take on, on that. Cause you'll be compared with the greatest, the, the greatest of the greats. Yeah. Kind of using this as a springboard for, for repertoire choice in general, the solo rep usually isn't may, maybe with the exception of Paganini and some of that stuff. It's not the traveling circus music. I think Canadian pianist Glenn Gould called it where it's, <laughs> it's the, the showpiece, right? Yeah. It's usually not that sort of stuff. Paganini can be because Paganini stuff is just like so technically monstrous on the violin. But, you know, in terms of like repertoire choice, it's funny, solo repertoire, you see it recorded a lot more than you see it performed. It, at the extent you see it, you know, we already said, you don't see it recorded even a lot because it's so hard and difficult and monumentous. Is, is that a word? Monumental. monumental. Yeah, monumentous. <laughs> yeah, there works. we go. <laughs> That's gonna be the name of my album, Monumentous. I like it. I, actually, I can I can dig that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But to the extent you do see solo rep um, happen, solo repertoire happen, it's usually recorded. It's not performed very often. It, when it is performed, it's usually an encore. Yeah. <laughs> so or like a filler piece. And I think it's, you know. or, or, yeah. or that. Yeah. But but even like um, but the flip side, it's funny to me. Look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Like the very the stuff that's performed all the time but never recorded is stuff like the showpieces, like the very, uh, I mean, I would think the Iber flute concerto falls in that category. Yeah. Um, 
what some of the uh, I mean a lot of stuff by Franz Liszt on the piano, uh, a lot of stuff that's just technically just ridiculously hard and, and things. Just so many notes, but you wouldn't ever see it recorded because. What am I trying to say? It's like the traveling. It's like fast. The traveling food circus act. It's it's almost yeah right. right. It's, it's not. It's hard to put it down on a recording because um, once you once the moment is lost, you know it relies so much on the theatrics and the fireworks of the moment that once that's right. taken away in a, in a recording, um, it loses most of its appeal. That's not a bad thing. That's just it's different. You know that there's some music that's like that. Right. It's very charming in person. You know. And then when you actually sort of take a step back, which is what recording is, it loses it loses its meat, or maybe it had no meat yeah. to begin with. That's a very interesting point that that you make. That I think there's something to that. Even the Paganini Caprices, you know, they're they're really they're really exercises, right? They're, they're that have made their way to the sort of encore repertoire. But but on the whole, you're right. So that solo music is not is not it tends not to be like very showy. And on the, the the flip side, it's not always true, but in in this case, it is that they, they also tend to be more intellectual, right? They they, mm-hmm. they especially in cases like like the Bach partitas and sonatas, they are you know monumental intellectual achievements, right? Both the composition of them and the yeah. and the performance and the recording of them, and that's this part of why I find I find that so much more more rewarding. It, actually, even the Talmud fantasies, you know, they. they they they're fun and they're they're sort of have a modern feel to them but ultimately you know like in the in the d major one that i recorded you know that's a french overture that he's he's implying a french overture right mm-hmm. that you would usually hear with the full you know with, with a set of strings and stuff but it's just the flute doing it and right um and then you have these problems of like how do you imply um how do you imply polyphony how do you imply texture you know um, yeah, you know, yeah. you run into these sort of very practical problems of composition, and then when you're performing them, you also run into very practical problems of performance. You know, um, right. so on the whole, it seems like a mm. like there's a there's an aspect of solo playing that is that's almost like a puzzle, yeah. which, which I really which I really um, enjoy, both just hearing it, like hearing the compositions and studying them and, and playing it, where where it's like okay how do i how do i change the articulation on the the low notes and the high notes so that it sounds like two people are playing So it's there, yeah. there's just more to it. It's not it's not straight up theatrics, you know. Yeah, and uh, I remember what was that solo piece I played on my recital back at Indiana? It was, uh, it was um, the Entrada. Yeah, by Odo Ketting. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a Entrada for solo trumpet, and yeah, the challenge for playing solo rep, I think, fundamentally comes down to like, how do I make this work? Yes. Right, and because it's not natural right because usually in all your musical training your musical upbringing your musical education when you're performing you're performing with other people be it a pianist be it an orchestra be it a woodwind quintet in your case a string quartet ensemble you feel the first time or maybe even still for you these days you always feel like a little bit out of place at first when you step on the stage by yourself to play a solo piece or maybe record a solo piece as you've done so the question is yeah how yeah i think this sounds kind of like too open-ended but i think that's the point i think that's the point how 
how do I make this piece work and make sense? You know, when it's just me and it's yeah. just I can I, on a trumpet. You know, a violin can play double stops at least. So there's they have some options for mul- for multiple notes. But you and me, we can only play one note at a time. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and then you have no. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's really daunting. Um, it's hard to hard to explain if you haven't been in that position. It's a, it's a hard feeling to to describe. But the 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 feeling of walking out to play a solo on stage is is a weird one. It's weird, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. odd, and your instinct is to sort of second guess yourself and be like, "Wait, you sure no one's behind me? You, you sure? Yeah, you right. sure it's just me out here, you know?" But if you if you sort of stop and think about that in the middle of playing it, you you've lost the moment, right? You you, you totally lose. I think th- there's also something here where it's really high stakes, and the audience can really um, can really maybe feel it if you're not in the moment. Is the right way to to put it if you're not yeah. if you if you're if it's just you on that stage and you're not totally owning it and you know mm-hmm. totally making it work like you said and sort of convincing the audience that this is you know this is your this is your thing it just becomes painfully obvious to me to me yeah. you know at least when i'm when i'm watching other performances it becomes painfully obvious when the if it's a solo if the performer is not totally in the moment or totally prepared you know, it really brings out all of the the um, weaknesses, which I think is yeah. another another reason why this music is less often performed. You know, to actually just st- you know stand up and, and play solo Bach for you know seventeen minutes, in the case of the flute yeah. partita, or almost thirty minutes in the case of the um, the D minor violin partita. Right. Um, that's I think if you haven't done that, um, it's hard to describe how how crazy of a prospect that is. You know. Um, yeah. You no, know, and yeah. when you walk out and you play solo repertoire, at least when I did it the first few times, it feels like an audition. Yeah, <laughs> <Right? 'Cause laughs> that's a good point. That's like that's the only time you've been in that context before, where you're like in a concert hall or recital stage, all by yourself on stage, performing music. I mean, yeah, the only time you've really done that before is for auditions. Yeah, not for performances. So <laughs> that's a, that, my like audition like gears clicked in. Like, all right, you know, all right, I have to play the the trumpet orchestral audition repertoire. So, you know, pictures and exhibition, yeah. Mahler five opening, like, Oh no, crap. No, I'm here to actually like perform something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and the, again, the mute, the music is in the case of the Bach solos and the, these Talamon fantasies, you know, the, the music is, mm-hmm. I think some of the best music there is precisely because of the limitation. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I really think that, that, um, that beauty is, is a product of constraint. So, Mm. You know, if you say something like write a write a write a fugue, but you only have you can only play one note at a time. Yeah, right. You know, now now we're cooking with something. Um, now yeah. now we now we're playing with problems of range and articulation and dynamics, and it's you know it's a it's a puzzle to solve, and and I think that makes it so much more interesting and beautiful. And and, and that's why I wanted to to record it too. Like I I love this music, and I spend a lot of my life thinking about it. Like the things that I play the most are probably the Bach partita, the Bach cello suites, and the violin sonatas and partitas. Like, I spend a lot of my time playing playing that music and thinking about it. I mean, I've, I've, I've always said, too, what's, what's funny about, you know, the show piece versus the, the not show piece. <laughs> and, um, yeah, people go to the concert hall and they hear Franz Liszt's piano concerto, right? And they plot. It's fantastic. It's great. It's crazy hard, all that, all that good stuff. Great. But then on the drive home, they listen to the Chopin Nocturnes. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes, and I think there's a lot going on in that, and I think that kind of like sums it it all up in, in a way. But um, but what you said was very sharp when you said product. No, beauty is a product of constraint. Hmm. 
I, I do have a theory that like so many of of the most beautiful real world works of art, which usually comes in the form of architecture, right? Like, you know, it's actual a thing in the world. Some of the most beautiful ones are not like the statues, but are instead the cathedrals. Yes. Yeah. Right. And things. Or the train and, stations. Yeah. The train station. Yeah. Like Grand Central Station or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, I recently rewatched a lot of the brilliant Ken Burns documentaries. One of his earlier ones, a documentary on the Brooklyn Bridge which is really fantastic. And it's only an hour too, which is <laughs> very short for a Ken Burns documentary. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's not like the 18 hour you know, baseball documentary he did and things. But the opening quote for the documentary, I thought I just really stayed with me and I thought was really, really well put. It's a quote from 1883, which I think is shortly after the Brooklyn Bridge was completed. And I forget who said it. I'm not sure if they even say in the documentary, but anyway, Quote goes, it so happens that the work so likely to become our most durable monument and to convey some knowledge of us to the most remote posterity is a work of bare utility. Not a shrine, not a fortress, not a palace, but a bridge. <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, the Golden Gate Bridge here in San Francisco, right? It, you know, the, the monument, I know you've recently moved to Indianapolis and there's a nice monument right in the middle <laughs> of your fine city. Um, that's great. You know, it's fantastic. But I do think, yeah, so so much of the true beautiful creations are, yeah, works of bare utility, a bridge. Yeah. And, and the point, yeah, I guess, obviously the point being that because of the constraints and that it couldn't just be a shrine or anything. No, it had to actually serve a purpose that yeah. those constraints are what created part of the the beauty and the end product. Yeah. And, and so much of, of, the, of Bach's solo works are, are like that, too. They're often written as as exercises both in instrumental playing and also in, in composition yeah you know? yeah he has as, as a title for his two-part inventions uh, let me try to see if i can pull it up d- d- do you know this the two for for, for which instrument sorry the the, the two-part inventions for for keyboard for piano yeah, yeah 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 are you familiar with like the title page uh no i'm i'm yeah. I'm not so he, he writes here. Let me just read this. So he writes yeah, in yeah. the title in the title for the invention and the symphonias for for solo keyboard. He says, "Forthright instructions wherewith lovers of the clavier, especially those desirous of learning, are shown in a clear way not only one to learn to play two voices clearly, but also, after further progress, two to deal correctly and well with three obligato parts. Moreover, at the same time, to obtain not only good ideas but also to carry them out well." but most of all to achieve a cantabile style of playing and thereby to acquire a strong foretaste of composition. Hmm. Very practical. And, Very practical, uh, and yeah. I think, and I think all of the, all of those, all the solo works are, are kind of in that, in that vein, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not showpieces. They're, they're, they're to right. study. They're intellectual. And, and, th- and that's also why I think you can carry them throughout your life, you know? You're always learning yeah. from them as in a way that you're simply not with, um, with like a showpiece by list or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not as Sorry, Franz Liszt. He, he, yeah, yeah. He, he, he did write some good music, uh, but a lot of the stuff people perform isn't that. <laughs> like, yeah. One of my pleasures is accidentally stumbling across a great documentary. I love this so much. And it happens more often than you think, 
or than you would think. Actually, no, you probably think I do that probably fairly regularly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think you, you watch more documentaries than anybody I know. Yeah, well, I so. used to watch a documentary. I mean, I still sort of do. I've gotten a little busier, but especially in the early days of the pandemic, I watched a documentary every night. And yeah, if I could just kind of back that up real quick. I think right now we are living in the golden age of documentary film, right? I think this is really, it's really taken off for really good reasons. And one of those, I think it's, you know, right now, just from a scale perspective, there's never been more documentaries. And I think documentary is one of those things where with scale, you know, I'm sure there's probably a fixed amount, like 5% of documentaries made are really, really good. Um, and That's I mean, and, less than that. Okay, two percent <laughs> are really, really good. But I'll say maybe like thirty percent are good. You know, there's decent. So naturally, when you just make a lot more, you're gonna have more. Yeah, you have more that are really, really good. And right now, there's never been more documentaries being made because with like technology and video editing software and filming software and all our cameras getting cheaper and in our smartphones and really professional quality cameras are getting cheaper too. So just the barrier to entry has never been cheaper and easier, right? So now there's a lot of really great student documentary films and things. So there's a breadth like there's never been before. Also, documentary film, I think, has a place now, right? Which is streaming. Mm. Before that, to like see a new documentary, it was sometimes a challenge. Either either you could see it on you know, um, linear cable TV, which is always a bad experience, right? Just because, just like when you watched a movie on TBS or something, you know, it's edited, right? So it can fit the commercial breaks nicely and things. And there's commercial breaks in the first place. So, and also documentaries didn't really get the viewership that Independence Day did on July 4th. (laughs) And so that's why documentaries on linear TV were always so dumbed down, so they're more mass appealing. This is how History Channel turned turn into, you know, ice road truckers and ancient aliens <laughs> as, as history and, and things. But now with streaming, there's really a place for documentaries. And, right, I mean, Netflix, Amazon, they're making Hulu, they're making original Hulu documentaries and things, which was not a thing a few years ago. But now it can reach it can reach that audience more easily. And because before, yeah, if you wanted to see a brand new documentary, you had to go see a screening in a big city somewhere. That was kind of hard to even hear about in the first place. So now there's that. And the third reason, too, I think... It's because with um, with the way news and media have become kind of um, infotainment, they call it, right? Entertainment, pretty thin, <laughs> thin layer stuff. Documentaries have become our place to really deep dive and think critically on something, right? Which we haven't, which we've kind of lost that in our mainstream space, I feel. So for all these reasons, I think we're living in the golden age of, of, of documentary film. And I happened to stumble across this documentary of a month or two ago uh, on Amazon Prime. I think it's still streaming on Amazon Prime. And it was made in 2015. And it's called The Jazz Loft, according to W. Eugene Smith. All right. And this is a brilliant documentary. This is so interesting. And I know this is, quote, a classical a classical uh, podcast we're on, but I would argue. Oh, we, we talk about jazz enough. <laughs> but I would even argue jazz is a form of classical music, right? I, I challenge yeah, yeah. you, the listener, to come up with any definition you can of classical music, and tell me how jazz does not fit into that. So, 
boom. There you go. Yeah. yeah, so anyway, this documentary is fascinating and it really fits into what we've been talking about, about recording and things. And you and Annalise would love this, um, this one. Because, so Eugene Smith, he was one of the iconic, like truly great photographers for, I'm pretty sure it was Time Magazine. Many of the great, like famous pictures of, I think like the Vietnam War and um, uh, just world history events and stuff it, are, were his. You would definitely recognize some of his photos and the, usually black mm. and white photography and things. And yeah, some of his pictures, I mean, yeah, just a true brilliant artist and photographer, really great stuff. And so I might have to rewatch it to be sure I got the story totally straight. But basically he hung out in this at this place in manhattan it was called it was nicknamed the jazz loft it was basically a loft office slash apartment people live there on and off for, for times and times or for, from from time to time but anyway it was where so many of the great jazz artists in new york just went to hang out with other guys uh, other jazz artists other artists other writers other poets other screenwriters it was just like this artist colony in the middle of Manhattan that was kind of its own thing and not really known to the outside world very much and and it's where um, uh, Thelonious Monk hung out a lot and played a lot because there's there's a piano and things and yeah that's an important thing they jammed there they jammed there a lot I was gonna ask is it are they hanging out or are they jamming yeah yeah well both as as it should be right and and yeah it was it was a funny thing too because because it was technically zoned as a commercial building, so it was technically an office. Uh, <laughs> there were no like noise ordinance laws or something, so they could just play at four in the morning every night. So, and when like anyone came to check out the building, they would put like all their clothes because some people would live there on like the couch from time to time. They put their clothes in, like the file cabinets and things and, <laughs> and, and all that. But here's the part that I think is amazing. Eugene Smith was official tenant of the loft, I want to say. And so he took all the pictures of all this happening. He, he's the one who documented all this. But him and one of the other guys who was uh, a recording engineer that knew what he was doing, this place, not in a creepy way, but in a really cool way, was mic'd up. And, doc- hmm. and they documented everything. 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 Like all the jam sessions were all recorded and stuff. And so, and all, a lot of the conversations were all recorded with these these jazz artists and things. And and basically, this documentary just kind of goes through a bunch of that, a bunch of the tape and a bunch of the pictures, and kind of explores what was going on. This cool little, and they interview a bunch of the people that spent time there and things. And it's something I I think it, it was a basically it was basically like you know the very first podcast I think <laughs> um, back in the sixties. Just this, the first jazz podcast. Yeah, I think Bernstein hung, hung out there too for a while and things. It was oh. just, it, yeah, it's just like this spot that, like in the, the underground artist circles, everyone knew about this loft in, in Manhattan, and and no one like you know snitched and told the city officials that this rather illegal sort of you know ordinance for because it's not zoned as a residential building and things. Yeah, it was. It stayed. It, it kept going strong for I think ten years or something, and. They recorded everything. I'm sure, I'm sure there are plenty of illegal substances there, too. Actually, no, everything... No, no. <laughs> no, no I'm kidding. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the 60s, yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, this is a documentary I think you would love, and I think listeners would love, and 
I loved it too, and part of the charm of, of it too, I, I just stumbled across. It came recommended in my Amazon Prime viewership, and weirdly enough, it was something I was actually interested in seeing. So, so <laughs> it's that doesn't <laughs> happen very often. I know, right? So, anyway, it's great and amazing, and you should totally check it out. Well, I wonder if we should set it as homework. We should set it as homework. How'd your move go, by the way? Oh, it was good. It was good. Uh, still, still, we're we're still in the um, unpacking phase. Or everything is unpacked, but we don't have a place for everything yet. Yeah. To all it's the listeners, place. if you're yeah. trying to find Schreeder in Madison, tough luck. He is he is now now in the glorious city of Indianapolis, Naptown. Naptown. Or what? What's the, what's the official title? Is it? I hope it's not Naptown. Is it Circle City? Circle City. It's not I, oh, I think that'd be kind of cool. Circle City. I think that's yeah, because right. of yeah. the circle in the downtown area. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. It has a great flag, and a great airport. Great flag, great flag, great airport. Every time I walk down the street and someone is flying um, the Indianapolis flag, I'm a little bit happy. And then every time I walk down the street and someone is is flying a an Indian an Indiana flag, like there are a couple oh. people around here who yeah they, they they fly Indiana state flags rather than rather than the Indianapolis city flag, and that seems to me traitorous yeah. because we have the Indianapolis is such a cool flag and Indiana is such a horrendous one. Yeah, Indiana flag's stupid. Yeah, it's just it, it looks like all the other state flags, just like blue. With, yeah, with yeah. The so gold to crest. to be yeah. clear, the yeah. Indiana flag is is hardly the worst U.S. state flag. There there are plenty of ones that are worse, but. As, as a collection, they're pretty bad. Yeah. What do you think is the worst state flag? That's a good question. Can, can I just sort of get a, get a yeah. look, at, look at all of them? Yeah. I, off the top of my head, um, I, I'm inclined to say that probably Maryland is the worst. <laughs> so Maryland, I... Because that, that one is, is an atrocity. It's funny. Some people will say it falls into the category that's so bad it's good. But I take it you don't agree <laughs> with that one. Because it's just like... I, I can I can see that I can see that actually, it's at least unique. You know, there's so many of them that are um, that I think Roman Mars calls them SOBs, right? Yeah, like seals on a bed sheet. That's right, that's right. No, um, there's a the Maryland state flag too. It's a combination between the DC flags and the Baltimore flags too. Like that's oh, where the colors so they come tried from. To do something. Yeah, that's where the colors come from at least. Like that yellow and black so is the like Baltimore flag. Yeah, right, exactly. And the white and red is the DC flag. Uh, but it's in DC ha- ha- has a good flag, the the red stripes and the stars on top of it. Um, yeah, fantastic flag. The thing I love about Maryland's flag, it's terrible, but again, it almost like goes around the circle where it's so bad it's good. And Maryland owns yeah. it because they put it everywhere. Like it's, really? at the University of Maryland, it's like in, in the end zones, it's like the, uh, on, the on the football <laughs> yeah. field is the flag, <laughs> like that flag design. It's on the Maryland That's license great. plate, so they don't shy away from it. They openly embrace it. So because of that, it's like, okay, okay. Ohio is pretty bad. Uh, oh, yeah, they went the um, Nepal route of not having a yeah. rectangular flag. Yeah. yeah. I have to, I'm sorry to say, but California is pretty horrendous. Oh, man, but like... California, it violates a lot of the flag rules, but it's at least unique in the scope of state flags. Uh, that's true. Cal- also, Cal- California is so close to being really cool. 
It, it's very just close. Get the, just get rid of the words and stylize the bear. Yeah, I mean, right? the words... <laughs> California's like those words, though, too, because California was an independent country for, like, four months. Not like Texas. That was, like, a real one with, like, years. It had its own currency and presidents and stuff. But California was, like, a independent state for, for you know, one fiscal quarter. <laughs> yeah. And and then like they're like shit, we can't do this. This is, this is tough. <laughs> yeah, no way. What is the best state flag? I always thought New Mexico. New Mexico is a great state flag. Ah, that's a pretty cool one. It's pretty cool. I have to say, I'm not. And I'm not totally. I love the colors and I love the simplicity, but it just doesn't do it for me for but some reason. Also, like a Native American sign too. So it's oh, okay. So I see. it's different. The color scheme is cool. Alaska's I kind of like. I remember because it has a star yeah, constellation on Alaska's it. Alaska's is pretty. It's still blue, yeah. which is a little boring for state flags. You know, it, it's at least different. You know, um, I kind of dig. Uh, is that Tennessee? Yeah, Tennessee, Tennessee has a cool one. I saw that flag okay. while in Alaska. I can put the pictures in the show notes. But I remember we were walking around Juneau, Alaska. I think it was, and I'm like, why the mm-hmm. fuck is there a Tennessee flag right there? And I still don't know. It was like above like a city hall building too. It was, huh? Yeah, I don't, maybe they had like a partnership with Nashville. I hate to say it, but Texas is pretty cool. Texas is cool. Um, it's pretty iconic. It's kind of a better version of the American flag. I always thought the American like, flag should be changed to the um, the Betsy Ross one with the circle and the thirteen oh, stars. Not only cool. does it look better and less cluttered, and it can like. Because when you see the American flag, like, sewn on like, military uniforms, let's say, the stars, you can't even, like, make out that they're stars. There's, like, little stitches, yeah. right? It's, like... Exactly. That. But the Betsy Ross flag, I think, is great. It, uh, so the 13 stripes. And the, and also, it would dodge the problem of when we add Puerto Rico as a state and D.C. as a state. We don't have to worry about 51, 52 it's, stars. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that should be the solution going forward. There's some southern states that have some decent flags. Like, Mississippi's is kind of cool. Yeah, and Mississippi is, is actually really cool. Yeah, Mississippi's is kind of awesome. Um, Alabama's not bad. It's getting a bit dicey. It's it's but almost <laughs> if the Scottish flag and the English flag had a baby, <laughs> it'd be the Alabama flag. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, fuck the Hawaiian flag with the Union Jack on yeah, there. Yeah, that's horrible. Heck, get the hell out of here. Are you recording this, by the way? Because I am. <laughs> I am. I am actually recording. Yeah, this same here. Now. Are you? <laughs> yeah. I <hope> this. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> yeah. This is podcast gold right here. <laughs> oh, who 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 is the who is the square flag? Is that Rhode Island with the anchor on it? What the? Oh yeah. That's kind of cool. That's pretty cool. I dig that. It's kind of cool. Not bad. Not bad. Colorado is always an example. That's pretty like standardly given as, as a good flag. With the big C in it. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, Sorry. dude. Dude, maybe I can find it right now. This guy, he's like a math, a math like PhD student somewhere, but he put together this giant like redesign of all the state flags, and it went kind of viral in the flag community years ago. Wait, wait. Hmm. state flag redesigns, and some of them are really good. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a assistant professor at the University of Puget Sound. Yeah, dude, some of these flags... I wish all the states would just adopt all these blindly. Like, some of them are that good. Um, dude, yeah, here... Send, send it over. Dude, here. Before we look at that, wait, any other state flag? Yeah, the problem with most of the state flags is, from a distance, you can't tell them apart. They're all blue, have the state seal, have the state seal in the middle. Um, I'm looking at you, Wisconsin, Indiana, yeah. Michigan, Nebraska, Montana, Oregon. Yeah, come on. You can do better than that, people. Like, put a little effort into this. 
put a little effort into this. <laughs> I like what he did with Arkansas. Oh, so you're looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> yeah. That was pretty clear. Can you read it for, for us? <laughs> so he says, Arkansas's flag with its red field and white stars on blue lines is another blatant attempt to sneak in Confederate symbolism. <laughs> in fact, the top blue star explicitly represents the Confederacy. Given that the flag dates from the 1920s and Jim Crow, this is not a good way to go. <laughs> my, my redesign keeps the diamond and the three large stars representing Ala uh, not, not Alaska, Arkansas, yeah. past this part of Spain, France, and the United States. The 25 smaller stars represent Arkansas's position as a 25th state. And the new green field calls to Arkansas's nickname of the natural state. But my favorite part about it is that the, the main thing is that he just takes the Arkansas that is written inexplicably on the Arkansas flag and just removes it. Yeah. Everything else is a minor. Dis <laughs> That's yeah. like noticeable. <laughs> if we end up putting this in the show, we should link to that TED talk about flag design by Roman Ooh, Mars. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's a great that, one. That's a brilliant TED yeah. talk that lays out all the rules. I have to say, I don't love his Colorado redesign. I like the Colorado flag. As the Colorado is. flag is good. Okay, fair enough. The, the, the redesign almost looks like it's um, like evil Google. <laughs> it does kind of look like... <laughs> Dude, that could be like the new Google Maps icon. Uh, Ooh, that would be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I like that a lot more. Um, dude, there's some of his I think you would really like. Okay, the the Indiana one. Okay, yeah, Indiana, one. Indiana is cool. Still not as cool as the Indianapolis flag. Still not as cool as the Indianapolis flag. This guy seems to be agree with you on uh, Maryland. Oh, does he? I have to confess. That. Yeah. <laughs> It's certainly recognizable at a distance. That's for sure. I'll give him that. Dude, the Minnesota flag I think is brilliant. The uh, this good. this redesign, this redesign. If you read this, so state seal, blue field. Again, Minnesota's flag is complicated, unrecognizable, and just plain awful. My variant uses the purple that's become Minnesota's unofficial state color, possibly due to the Vikings, the NFL team, or Prince. The Nordic cross recognizes the state's Scandinavian roots. The yellow star alludes to Minnesota's nickname of the Star of the North. And you can see in French on the current flag. Oh, oh yeah, Star of the North that you can see in French on the current flag. The current flag does say the Toile du Nord. It also, it's also meant to evoke a compass rose. Here's a distinctive flag that would be easily recognizable. I think the Minnesota redesign is really smart. Yeah. Cause yeah, it looks almost like the like the layouts what you would have of like the Norwegian flag, the Swedish flag, all those kind of Nordic flag language designs that he puts here. I, I think it's very cool. Um, yeah, New Jersey, I like. Uh, Though I have to say, I don't I don't like it in the sense that I don't think New Jersey deserves to have a cool flag. Like this flag is way cooler than anything in New Jersey. So this guy agrees with me on New Mexico. New Mexico yeah, is, really is a gorgeous was. flag. Yeah, yeah, it looks... Oh, I didn't draw that connection. It has the color scheme of the Spanish flag. Um, oh, yeah. Um, that's great. I remember his flag designed for Washington. I liked a lot. Washington State. I can find it. Hey, he, kept te he keeps Texas as it is. It's not, it's okay. Cool. Oh, and South Carolina as well. Huh. South Carolina isn't bad. Yeah. Surprising. Yeah, I do like Rhode Island's. He kind of kept the same kind of design language when redesigning the flag. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Washington is really cool. Washington? And yeah, Rhode Island. If you read the description he has for Washington, I thought, yeah, Washington's real flag has been sarcastically referred to as the giant dollar <laughs> bill. That <laughs> someone ran up a flagpole because it does have George Washington right in the middle. My redesign is far less complicated. It's actually based on the coat of arms of the Washington family, as is the flag of Washington, D.C. Oh, that's where the Washington, D.C. flag design comes yeah. from. 
I'm honoring one of our founding fathers and a man who voluntarily chose to step down from power. <laughs> However, I replaced the the red with the same green. Okay. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of the he does some city flags. Yeah, no, it's the Seattle flag I really love that he did. Yeah. Ooh, Seattle's good. Yeah. Dude. Oh, that's a good flag design. I'm really not sure what Seattle's flag is supposed to be. Honors the eponymous Chief Seattle, but it's overly complicated. Seattle is better known as the Emerald City, not the city of goodwill. My redesign starts with the Emerald Field. It was influenced to some degree by Japanese city and prefecture flags. Always a fan. I was going to say that, actually. Yeah. I was going to say it reminded me of the Tokyo, yeah. the, 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 not the Tokyo, the, the Japanese prefecture style. Yeah, showcasing, showcasing Seattle's location on the Pacific Rim. The blue stripes on either side re represent the Puget Sound and Lake Washington, which borders Seattle to the west and the east. And the six-pointed star recalls an emerald, which has a natural hexagonal lattice. I've also made its points needle sharp, referencing another famous landmark, the Space Needle. Brilliant. I think that's a brilliant flag awesome seattle should just like just like adopt that no questions asked that is just like very well done um yeah I, i'm curious what he thinks about the indianapolis flag because i think that's one of the best city flags yeah that's, that and that's like chicago chicago's, chicago's a good one um where are some other good city flags uh most of them are even worse than the state flags like la's is, la's is garbage oh, la's is, yeah. is one of the worst new york's is really bad have you ever seen the um I think if it's put on, let me just Google it real quick. Unless they've changed it. Oh, yeah. Um, the Ann Arbor flag. Uh, I'm going to Google it right now. No. I mean, it's not, it's not offensively bad. It's not the worst flag <laughs> I've ever seen, but it's, it's pretty hilariously boring. Wow. The one with the three highlighter yellow stripes. Yeah. Wow. That's... And then just like a tree that says City of Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's, that's it's pretty very, bad. Um, utilitarian. It's, pretty... it's very utilitarian. Pretty bad. Um, Portland has a good flag. Oh, yeah, yeah. Portland is cool. Yeah, Portland's a good flag. Um, that are n now draped across the city as, you know, tents and homeless encampments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. But they better have a good flag because they have the flag authority there, right? That's right. That's right. That's, that's, yeah, that's very true. That would um, be not a good look if they had a garbage flag. <laughs> I'm actually really curious. Paris flag. Does Paris have a flag? Stupid, boring. Yeah, I've seen that flag in Paris. Yeah, it's just two stripes. Oh, yeah. That's... I will say, you know, I, I give more leeway to places like France, Paris, or like the English flag, you know, because it's like, it's so old. It's kind that's of like true. a, you know, it's like, it's almost like a historic thing, you know. It's, it's back in the day before, like, computer design. It's like they had, like, two pieces of... They had, like, two colors of dye available. That's fair. That's you know, fair. And they could do, and they could do like, straight lines. That's it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the the Union Jack is, a, is like, maybe the best flag ever. Um, the Union Jack is pretty Because it's a combination of two flags. I mean, that's just... Three three flags, I think, right? It's it's the, oh, it's it the English flag, the, the, the Scottish saltire, and, and the... Um, the the um, St Andrew's Cross or whatever that's oh, called. No, no, that's it, Scott. It's the the only one that isn't represented is is the Welsh flag. The Welsh flag's not in there. I remember, yeah, because that's a uh, that one that one. Yeah, hard so, so it's got the flag of Northern Ireland, which is basically the flag of Alabama. Got it. Okay, got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So the so the north the the the, the north south and the east west are 
English, and then the the diagonals are Scottish and Northern Ireland, but they're two different colors. Gotcha, gotcha. Ah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it now. That's a, that's a that's a classic. Madison, Wisconsin, huh? Their slugs not bad. It's not horrible. It's not bad. Um, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's better than most. Uh, Des Moines, Iowa. That's a, huh? I'm I'm a fan. If that's the real one, that's not just like a redesign. Yeah, it's okay. It's a bit. It's a bit disorienting. I have to say. It, it is like an optical illusion. It feels like, but it's 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 different. Yeah. It's different. It's um, different. Yeah. Oh god, this is a rabbit hole. You could just spend your whole. There's a podcast. Like co- country flags seem to be better than uh, than city and state flags on the whole. Country flags, yeah, but like they're usually pretty safe. I noticed. Like so many country flags look have stripes on them, right? Like three stripes yeah. going this way or that way. And yeah, like they're, they're pretty conservative and safe, which makes sense. Cause it's on you know, the international stage. Um, yeah, there's yeah. some pretty badass ones though. Like I love South Africa. I love Sri Lanka. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, depending on how you define it, I like Hong Kong's <laughs> if you count that as a, Ooh, yeah. Hong Kong is a good flag. Both, both Hong Kong and Macau have, yeah, have Macau some, too. um, beautiful flags. Oh, dude, I might have a new favorite city flag, Phoenix, Arizona. Hell, dude. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Dude, sold. dude. So totally on board. Sold. That is exactly what it should be. Yeah. That beautiful, like, Bold. magenta, red, scarlet red, and the phoenix yeah. in the middle. And thank God it's stylized and not just like a picture. Not not like the um the San Francisco flag with the phoenix on it. Yeah, not not like the San Francisco bear. Yeah, no the the San, the bears on the state flag. Um, oh, sorry, the, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the San Francisco flag? Yeah, it's a it's a phoenix because it's supposed. Oh, to, I see. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's supposed to symbolize you know yeah. coming out of the ashes of the fires from the earth, great earthquake and stuff. All right. Well, I gotta get going. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> Wow, okay. Um, Yeah, I wonder how much of that we'll keep.